say what you want about the blasphemy laws of old, but they were relatively fixed. Whereas with the hate speech laws of the of the modern age, they change over time. For example, if you held a mainstream view on any given matter 20 years ago, then 10 years ago, that view has now moved from the mainstream to perhaps being on, on the fringes. Over a 20-year period, your view hasn't changed. The law hasn't changed. Nothing has changed. And your view's gone from mainstream to fringe to illegal. Hello, welcome back to the Brendan O'Neill Show with me, Brendan O'Neill, and my special guest this week, Paul Coleman. Paul, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Paul, there is so much for us to talk about in relation to an issue close to your heart as well as my heart, which is freedom of speech, freedom of conscience, freedom of thought, freedom of speech. You are an executive director at ADF International, which is the Alliance Defending Freedom, which is a legal advocacy group that really stands up for people's right to express themselves, especially to express their religious beliefs, to practice their religious faith. And you cover a lot of interesting, disturbing cases in relation to the restrictions that are being placed on people's freedom to express themselves and freedom to believe what they want to believe. So I want to dig down into all of that stuff with you today. And I want to start off by asking you about a case that you've been closely involved in over the past few years. Some listeners will be familiar with it, others might not be. To me, it's one of the most shocking examples of the new censorship that you could imagine. So this is the case of the Finnish politician, Paivi Razanen, who's also a grandmother, who is also a Christian. And she notoriously, allegedly notoriously, tweeted her discomfort with her local church and its support for a Helsinki pride march. And she also included in her tweet some verses from the Bible, some supposedly controversial verses from the Bible, in which she was basically saying, why is my church supporting um, a, a gay rights march, a pride march? For doing that, she has been dragged through the court system under the auspices of having committed some kind of hate crime. Really Orwellian stuff. So I want to ask you, because you are closely linked to this case, what's the story behind Pivey Resonant and what's currently going on with this case? Yeah, thanks, Brendan. Thanks for having me on. Well, I will try and tell the story as concisely as possible so we can talk about it. Um, it all started in 2019. So we're already over four years in at this point when she sent the tweet that you just mentioned. When she did that, the police began investigating her for this hate speech offense. And then they started looking at other things that she had said or written over the years. They dug out a 2004 pamphlet that she had written for her church on similar topic of marriage, sexuality from her Christian perspective. So they dug that out. And then um, as Paivi was discussing all of these sorts of things on a, on a live um, national radio debate, they extracted around about one minute from a one-hour live debate and put that out of context and then made a, a charge from that as well. So she faced three charges of criminal hate speech. It's a, a law in the, in the Finnish criminal code that falls under the section of war crimes and crimes against humanity, <laughs> carries a maximum two-year prison sentence. Although in her infinite mercy, the prosecutor was only going for crippling fines and essentially a recantation of her beliefs. And then the bishop of the Lutheran Church who published the booklet in 2004 also faced trial for doing this booklet, for publishing it 20 years ago. 
which, by the way, was many years before the law under which they're being prosecuted was in force. Okay, so um, she was investigated in 2019 into 2020. 2021, the general prosecutor announced these charges and published an indictment against her. She then appeared in court twice in 2022. She was acquitted by the Helsinki District Court. All charges were dismissed in March of last year. And then the, gen- and then the, the regional prosecutor um, appealed that decision, which we're allowed to do in Finland, and essentially reopened the case, which was heard just last week at the Helsinki Court of Appeal. So I was back in Helsinki, Finland, two-day trial, where essentially they just redo the whole thing. Um, you start again as if, as if everything that happened last year in the acquittal counted for nothing. And we're just back in a higher court last week, starting again. And so here we are. It's over four years. Um, the the amount of time, energy, and resources that Ivy has to put into this to defend herself. Then you think about all of the time, energy, and resources the state are pouring into this to prosecute her. And the whole thing is honestly just absurd. And I sat there through the whole trial just thinking, I, you know, it, if you weren't witnessing it with your own eyes, you would struggle to believe it was really happening. You, you would. And I've read some of the uh, pieces you've written about this case. I've followed it. And I have been disturbed by what's been done to this woman. And it's interesting because if you look at some of the things that she's accused of saying, um, for example, suggesting that homosexuality is unnatural, that, that, that there's a psycho, psychosocial disorder element to homosexuality. Now, many of my listeners will disagree with that. They will say that that's incorrect. That's not an, an apt description of, of um, same-sex attraction. Others might agree with it. Who knows? But the, the point is the idea of punishing someone or seeking to punish someone for expressing what to them is a deeply held belief just seems so alien to me and I hope to to most normal people who believe, who think that freedom of conscience and freedom of speech are incredibly important. I wanted to ask you, what has the impact been in Finland? What is the general discussion around this case in Finland? Is there an aura of disbelief and shock that um, a, a, a woman could be dragged to court simply for expressing a deeply held religious belief and one that she ought to be entitled to hold and express in a free society? Yeah, I think that the initial media response in the Finnish mainstream media was rallying around the sort of what you'd imagine legacy media to be like. Um, and imagining that, well, it, it, no smoke without fire. So if this is happening, then she must be really bad. It must have been really bad and, and so forth. And then as uh, the court case unfolded, it sort of last year, it started to turn a little bit. Then people realized what was at the heart of this case was nothing more than her her deeply held beliefs. And I think the media has been on a bit of a journey from its default position of essentially backing the regime to um, more of a critical view, uh, and, and as they should, because of course you, you would hope that if anyone was going to be standing up for freedom of speech, it would be the press um, whose lives depend on it. And, and so I think there has been a shift there. And in fact, I was thinking last week as we were in Finland looking at the media reporting and, and all the rest of it, it's, it's, it's either neutral or 
or skeptical as to what's happening. There's there's very few voices coming out in favor of censorship, which is actually often the case. In fact, as, as you and I have debated free speech, not against each other, but looked for opponents over the years, we both know it's actually hard to do because it's a hard thing to stand on a platform and, and be in favor of censorship. It's something that people like to do behind the scenes and in, in quiet windowless rooms where they're drafting legislation, but not something that people are often prepared to to argue for in public. So uh, one one point you made in, in a recent piece you wrote for us at Spiked, Paul, about this case in Finland is, uh, and this kind of leapt out at me because you, th- you think about it, you think this is, this is really true. You think to yourself, if this can happen in Finland, which is considered to be a very peaceful country, a happy country, it's considered to be a very free country as well. It often does very well in those kind of global measurements of freedom. Um, then imagine what can happen in other countries. So it, there's there's a kind of a contradiction there, isn't it, between people's vision of Finland and the fact that it has what I would consider to be one of the most shocking cases of hate crime persecution that we've seen in Europe over the past few years. So how how do people how do you explain that contradiction? How do other people in Finland deal with that contradictory image of themselves as well? I think that contradiction just goes to the heart of of um, the problem with the laws themselves, that these laws are so vaguely worded and they're so subjective that they can really be arbitrarily enforced by those holding power. And so in this instance, the way we talk about the case is Finland and the state are doing this or that. But the reality is that it's been something that has been directed by the general prosecutor who was considered somewhat ideological and the regional prosecutor, who is again following in, in those footsteps. And it, it, it's not clear by any means that this is somehow, uh, you know, the entire Finnish establishment coming down on Paivi here. Uh, and, and as I have um, been going to Finland over the last four years, only for this case, um, I, I have um, been really pleasantly, you know, very happy with just how, how nice the people are, uh, seemingly how freedom-loving they are and and how shocked many lawyers that I've spoken to there are about what's happening. Many have said to me, please don't judge Finland based on this case and don't judge our legal system based on this. And and so I think, so the way I hold it all together is is by thinking it just shows when you have these terribly worded laws on the books, how they can be used and manipulated uh, really as a weapon against those who hold contrary views to any particular um, person in power. And I think that's exactly what we see in in this case. Yeah. I, I want to come back to the laws themselves and the problem with hate speech laws, which is something that you've spoken about and written about extensively, including your, in your book Censored, which covers the the rise and the tyranny of hate speech legislation. So I want to come back to that question in a moment and how it pertains to Europe more broadly. But uh, just following on from the Pi v. Resonant case, I did want to ask you about pride authoritarianism, because this is something I'm kind of very grimly fascinated by at the moment, because on, on, on one level, listeners may be shocked to hear about this case in Finland, but on another level, it kind of makes sense in the climate that we're currently living in, where it has become... Pride and the Pride flag, which is now omnipresent. I mean, in Pride Month, you can't 
swing a cat in London without hitting a pride flag dangling from some bank or some shop or uh, across the boulevards in Piccadilly, in schools, everywhere. Um, It's become this very uh, omnipresent symbol of a supposedly fair, equal society. But of course, anyone who bristles against it, as we saw with um, someone who was accused, who was questioned by the cops here in the UK for making a swash sticker out of four pride flags, that was considered a police matter. We've also had a situation in the UK over the past few years, which you will be very familiar with, where Christian street preachers have been arrested. One was held in a cell, I think, for 19 hours or so and eventually uh, uh, exonerated for preaching uh, the biblical view on homosexuality and, and, and why it's wrong for a man to lie with a man and so on. So there is this strange situation, isn't there, where um, things have turned around to an extraordinary degree. And it's now the, the pride side of the discussion who behave in an almost neo-religious, tyrannical fashion towards their critics. So how, how do you explain explain that where pride has taken on this role in in 21st century european society yeah i i saw um someone in regard to the the pavey case that put on twitter that that states will always tend towards enforcing blasphemy the question is just what it chooses to sacralize to make sacred Uh, and i think that what we see in in the modern hate speech movement is essentially blasphemy laws for the 21st century and therefore blasphemy against the current orthodoxies of the day. And in many ways, those orthodoxies are held as dogmatically and religiously as religions of the past, and they certainly have captured the public square. Um, And so I think that one way I view this is essentially modern-day blasphemy against the state-imposed orthodoxy. And it's just that all the roles are now reversed or changed or, or, or different. But you know, in, in a sense, it follows a, a pattern that we've seen throughout Europe for as far as we can, we can look back. And, and of course, um, many hundreds of years ago, a lot of that was being enforced Catholics against Protestants, Protestants against Catholics, Protestants against Protestants um, 500 years ago. That's where we see uh, a lot of it taking place. And, and a lot of this has now come back, I think, in the 21st century for the, the secular age in which we live. I, I want to ask you about a couple of other blasphemers, uh, blasphemers against the new orthodoxies, um, cases that you've written about um, over the past uh, year or so. I want to ask you about the Norwegian filmmaker. Now, I'm not going to try and pronounce her name. I might leave that to you. Um, but this is a, a female filmmaker in Norway who was um, a questioned and uh, a, a, almost punished over her belief that a man cannot be a lesbian and especially a man cannot be a lesbian mother. Now, if we went back five or six years, uh, the very idea of calling a man a lesbian or calling a man a mother would have been considered utterly preposterous and against reason, against science, against truth. Uh, but now it's something, if you say that, if you say that, listen, blokes aren't lesbians and blokes aren't mothers, you can be harassed in this way, in a legal fashion, as this Norwegian filmmaker has. Tell us a little bit about that case and what you, what you think that tells us about some of the issues around transgenderism in particular, which I think seems to be a pretty, one of the most severe expressions of the culture of you can't say that in our in our climate. 
Yeah, absolutely. Well, I can't pronounce her name either, but we go for Tonjay for her first name. It's not, not actually a, a, an ADF case, but of course we've been following it given the parallels to, to other work that we do. Um, and yeah, very similar to the Pivy case in a, in a sense. It was also on social media. It was on Facebook. And she had posted a fairly innocuous statement that she said, and I quote, it's just as impossible for men to become a lesbian as it is for men to become pregnant. Men are men regardless of their sexual fetishes. Well, it was that that obviously tipped everyone over the edge. Um, and she was investigated. Unlike Pivey's case, it, it, it didn't move forward. But as you say, it showed that was a, a mainstream view just a few years ago. And I think what it highlights is how fluid these um, sort of hate speech laws are. I mean, say what you want about the blasphemy laws of old, but they were relatively fixed, which meant over a relatively long period of time, you would probably know if you were in violation of one of them or not. Whereas with the hate speech laws of the, of the modern age, um, they're so vaguely worded that they can really be, they change over time. For example, if you held a mainstream view on any given matter 20 years ago, then 10 years ago, that view has now moved from the mainstream to perhaps being on, on, on the fringes. And then today, maybe that is considered a view that would get you reported to the police or, or banned from banking institutions or social media or whatever. And so if you think about that, over a 20-year period, your view hasn't changed. The law hasn't changed. Nothing has changed. And your view has gone from mainstream to fringe to illegal. And, and it is incredibly sinister how this works, because none of us can really know if what we're saying is going to cross this invisible line, because that line moves. It's like shifting sand. It moves all the time. And to go back to Pivey's case, she was writing some of the things that you said 20 years ago, when that was much more part of the mainstream. And then maybe 10 years ago, it was on the fringe, and maybe today it's considered criminal, whatever. But not only is it shifting sands in terms of um, how people understand what is hateful or not, but it's also they're going back in time and digging things out from the past and then applying them to today's standards as well. I mean, who of us could be safe? Who of us could be absolutely certain that everything we've said, you know, is going to pass this invisible standard? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's that's such an important point about the shifting sands of what you're allowed to think and say. I often think that, you know, I've stood relatively still, I think, in my beliefs over the past 20 years, but because the parameters of acceptable thought have moved and swirled all around me and many other people too, you find that the belief you've held for a long time suddenly is verboten. You can't say it in polite society and it's possibly even a punishable one if we get into the uh, the, the strange legal system. Um, that's an important point. I think a lot of listeners will feel that in a very real way that, you know, they think they're beliefs are perfectly reasonable and they are but because society or social norms have been redefined that kind of makes criminals of us all potentially they are quite clear that they design and word hate speech laws in a way that anticipates this and so they're they, they're vaguely worded on purpose it's not a design flaw it's a design feature and i remember when the i can't remember who it was when they were trying to pass the ridiculous extremism law one of the many attacks on free speech under the conservative government over the last decade. And one of the people who's supporting this, one of the ministers came out in support of it and said they wanted to future-proof the law 
against types of extremism that they can't even anticipate yet. And this, this was in response to a question, hey, you want to ban extremism, please can you define it? He said, no, 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 we're not, we're not going to give you an accurate definition because we want it to be future-proofed. So they're actually crystal clear and very explicit that they're designing these laws vaguely on purpose so they can shift the sands in the future. I mean, that is chillingly Orwellian when you think about the consequences of that. Um, there's one more case I want to ask you about as well that you've written about um, before we move on to the kind of broader questions around all of this. This is the case of Rodrigo Ivan Cortez uh, in Mexico. He is a, a former Mexican congressman, uh, a well-known figure, I think, in political society who was uh, convicted of gender-based political violence. Now, that sounds pretty bad. Uh, it sounds like he was up to no good if he's committing an act of political violence. But it turns out, actually, he raised some critical points about the idea that a man can identify as a woman, in this case, specifically about two men who are identifying as women and taking places that were reserved for women in the legislature. Tell us a bit about that case. And um, again, it speaks, doesn't it, to the unreason of our times and the unreasonable way in which perfectly normal, correct beliefs have been criminalized. Some, in some cases, it feels like overnight. Tell us a bit about that, that story in, in relation to Mexico. Yeah, well, it actually became now, I think, first place. So when I was first involved in the Pavi Razanen case, I told her, hey, I think this is the craziest case I've worked on today. And then I was with her last week and I said, I'm sorry, but I, you know, you're no longer in first place anymore um, because I think this is probably now at the top because... Again, just the Orwellian nature of it. So as you say, he's a former congressman, civil society leader. He and another congressman both charged with um, gender-based political violence because in Mexico, they um, they essentially have uh, their parliament uh, 50% reserved for women. And then two men identifying as women took these spaces in the parliament and they these other congressmen complained about it, again, just on biological reality. And have then been charged and convicted at every level within the Mexican system now um, of gender-based political violence, which sounds awful, as you say, apart from when you realize, oh, I see what they've done. They've taken the word violence and applied it to something that's non-violent in the next step of what we're dealing with. And so it's not violence. It's just that now they're saying words of violence, which of course is a slogan that people have been saying on university campuses for years. We just never actually believed it would become a law. And in fact, and it's even worse that they were um, convicted of what is called in Mexico symbolic violence. So again, just, you know, this idea that uh, you have symbolically been violent against someone because of the words that you have said. And so those convictions have all sorts of um, penalties attached to them in terms of whether they can run for office again, uh, in terms of their participation in the political process. And just like something out of Soviet times, and we hear about re-education camps and recantations and what have you, they were both court-ordered to issue these sort of public apologies um, on their social media, day after day apologizing, all this sort of crazy stuff. And so both those cases are now ongoing at an international court level. But in Mexico, they've both been um, convicted, both Gabriel Quadri, who's a liberal, and then Rodrigo Cortez, who's a who's a Catholic. So very different ends of the political spectrum in Mexico, but both found themselves on the wrong side of this issue. Um, I mean, it is 
so extraordinary. The the idea that standing up for women's rights is not only hate speech, but violence. And you, you think to yourself, you know, a large part of feminism, especially second wave feminism, was challenging male violence, challenging the threats that women faced. And now you have a situation, fast forward to 2023, when it's seen as an act of violence to defend women and to defend the idea of women and the rights of women against the notion that someone with a penis can click his fingers and become a woman and take a woman's place. I mean, it is an extraordinary state of affairs that we find ourselves in. And to question that now, as a now you're known as a violent offender. And it, I mean, it is so hard to then try and explain to everyone why you're really not, because that sticks. Obviously, they, they've taken these known words, known words for a very long time, and completely gutted them and changed their meaning. It's not easy to undo that now. So now we have two men in Mexico known as violent offenders for just speaking biology. It's scary, actually. And if we look at those three cases that we've just been talking about, I mean, in some ways, they're quite different. So in, in Finland, you have a, a Christian lady, a Christian woman, a Christian politician who is expressing um, views that were critical of pride. In Norway, the filmmaker there was standing up for lesbian rights and, and well, for the existence of lesbians and, and the recognition that lesbians are women, not men. In Mexico, you have a civil society actor, a former congressman uh, standing up for women's right to sit in parliament. So they seem different in terms of the values that each person is putting forward. And I'm sure they are different kinds of people. But what binds them together, of course, is this creeping redefinition of certain forms of moral belief or, or political speech as hateful or violent or criminal. That's, that's the bind here. And that really brings me on to the, the next point I wanted to raise with you, which is that these cases may seem extreme to us. You now think that the Mexican case has kind of knocked Pivy off the top spot as the maddest one of our times. And they do seem extreme and people will be shocked. But at the same time, they are the logical consequence, aren't they, of, of um, hate speech laws in general. So one point that you guys at the ADF have made about the Finnish case, for example, is that we could well see something like this in Scotland when Scotland pushes through its hate speech legislation, which is sounds like a pretty rotten law, we could very easily see a situation where someone is taken to court for expressing strong Christian views or strong gender critical views. So even though the consequences in these cases have been quite extreme, the logic is there across European societies, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and really, the logic also has always been there in terms of blasphemy laws in places like Pakistan, Nigeria, and elsewhere, which essentially we could, I could summarize as saying that um, you have uh, a certain set of beliefs that are um, considered against the orthodoxy. So, for example, that could be Islamic orthodoxy in somewhere like Pakistan or some of these other orthodoxies that we're talking about in the West. And you are not only not allowed to um, hold and express the views that go against that orthodoxy, but you have to be um, punished for expressing them. Um, and, and so we see that logic taking place in, in all of these different contexts. And really, the, the hate speech laws, they're just a vehicle to, to enforce this orthodoxy. Um, and in other countries, they'd come under the guise of, of, of different names. And then they, as I say, they're they're deliberately worded in such a way that's so vague that they can be interpreted by the regime. Uh, Ireland's hate speech bill, which is going through right now, does not define hate speech. Many don't. 
there is no agreed definition of hate speech. Any definition that you hear of it is just a circular definition. Hate speech is hateful speech sort of thing. Um, and so you, you, what we have allowed to happen, and in a sense, we're all to blame because we have been asleep at the wheel while a lot of this legislation has been adopted in our Western nations. And now they've laid dormant for many years in a lot of different countries. And now we're seeing just what terrible laws we have allowed to be passed in our, in our Western democracies and, and how they are being turned against us. And the, one, of the, one of the other patterns that we see is once you go down this route, there really is a sense that censorship begets or creates more censorship. It, it never really seems to go in any other direction. And so a lot of the countries that have passed these hate speech laws, it, it's never enough. They seem to be wanting more and more and more censorship. And so the UK has so many laws that ban speech in so many different contexts, and it's never enough. They always seem to think they need more censorship. Um, okay, so I want to ask you a bit more about hate speech laws. Um, you wrote a book a few years ago called Censored, how European hate speech laws are threatening freedom of speech. Um, your book had a big influence on me. Anyone who's read my new book, A Heretic's Manifesto, will know that I quote from your book a couple of times in there, um, in the chapter on, on um, hate speech and, and hate crimes. Um, one thing I, find ve I found very interesting about your book and some of the arguments I've heard you making over the past few years is, is relates to the origins of hate speech laws because, and that's a really interesting question because I think some people probably think they're very new. You know, it's, it's, it's quite sudden that we have these laws that will punish a Mexican guy for defending women or a Norwegian filmmaker for standing up for the reality of lesbianism or whatever. Some people think that's kind of come out of the blue and is probably influenced by these blue haired kids marauding on campuses and, and making society more censorious. Other people probably think they've been growing since the 80s and 90s when I think there was some shifts in society towards policing hatred. But in your book, you actually trace it back longer than that to the post-war period and a tussle really, I guess, between a West that was clinging onto the ideal of freedom and um, more authoritarian Soviet or Eastern elements that were keen to enforce new forms of censorship after the uh, in the post-war moment. Tell us a little bit about those kind of historical origins of the idea of hate speech and the idea that we have to control hate speech. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I'll try and be brief again. <laughs> After the Second World War, Europe was just in ruins and um, the nations of the world came together and said, hey, how do we make sure that, that this never happens again? So that's the origin of what we have today with the United Nations. And they, they passed and negotiated a number of different treaties in those days that was meant to limit the power of the state and protect the rights of citizens um, and provide some accountability beyond the, what you have within a country. Because the argument from within Germany at the time was, hey, everything that they did was lawful according to the law that was there. And they thought, well, we need a higher law um, because this isn't going to cut it. You had the Nuremberg trials, you had the UN, you have all of these um, human rights treaties, which gives birth to the modern human rights movement. Now, at the time that all of that was happening, the world was completely divided between the, the West and the Soviet communist, generally speaking, East, and particularly Europe, obviously, Iron Curtain, East-West divide. So that is reflected in the voting patterns of the time, as all of these key documents we rely on today were being uh, drafted and negotiated. And 
sadly for all of us, it was the the Soviet-led communist position that won out in those debates regarding freedom of speech because the Western bloc wanted were, were okay with banning um, incitement to violence. It was a clearly defined term. People were okay with it. And the Soviet bloc thought that didn't go far enough. Uh, we have to uh, target the word before the deed, as one of their negotiators put it. And so they successfully advocated for the banning of what they referred to as advocacy of hatred. And that's where we see the beginning origins of this phrase. So advocacy of hatred trace that through to the present day is where we get modern day hate speech laws from. It's also incidentally why Paivi Raznan is being tried under a criminal section in, in the section of criminal code on war crimes and crimes against humanity, because that whole cluster of laws in Finland's criminal code comes from this sort of post-war period, trying to stop war crimes, trying to stop the rise of totalitarianism, what have you. So the fact that she's being charged under that law is is like a smoking gun that points to these origins. Um, and so you know, the sad irony is that all of, all of the Western nations uh, voted against that and then in the last 50 years have adopted all of the thinking, all of the laws, everything that they voted against and argued against at the end of the Second World War period. So it's, it's, a, it's a sad irony that the things that our governments are espousing today would have been in stark contrast to what they were putting forward in defense of free speech and uh, human rights just 60, 70 years ago. I mean, it is, people really ought to uh, read your book for that kind of historical depth in terms of the the seeds that were planted uh, largely by Soviet authoritarians, Soviet, Soviet dictators who were keen to control speech and belief in the post-war period. And uh, largely under the guise of tackling fascism and, and, and the far right. That was the way in which they justified their position. But of course, it was motored by a broader concern with making sure there was not too much dissent, too much uh, questioning of their power and so on. Exactly. They were only doing it as a guise for silencing their political opponents. And so, and there was one point where they were trying to, uh, they were talking about the need to ban fascism. And I think it was a Canadian delegate who said, well, you can't even define this. And now we, we all thought we knew what we meant by fascism, but now you're defining fascism as anyone who's against communism. And so even back then, you could see how they were using vaguely worded terms um, and these vaguely worded laws as a guise, essentially, to be able to send their political opponents to the gulag. And, and now it's this great irony that we've lost that heritage. And now Canada probably ranks one of the least free places in the West when it comes to all this sort of stuff. Hi, it's Brendan here. I just wanted to remind you that you can still buy my book. It's called A Heretic's Manifesto, Essays on the Unsayable. And I've really been blown away by the response to it from readers, reviewers, Spike supporters. People really like this book and I think you're going to like it too. It covers all the insanities of our time, from climate change hysteria through to COVID authoritarianism, through to the trans ideology. And it basically makes the case for more freedom of speech, more debate and more heretical thinking to challenge the conformism of our times. So what are you waiting for? Go to Amazon right now and order my book, A Heretic's Manifesto, Essays on the Unsayable. And now on with the show. Yeah, absolutely. And um, yeah, a, a, a chilling state of affairs. 
And of course, it's worth remembering that um, the Soviets denounced the Hungarian revolutionaries of 1956 who were rising up against uh, Soviet rule and were successful for a short period of time. They denounced them as fascists and far right. And that, that it was a it, it ought to have been an early glimpse of the exploitation of the accusation of fascism to actually enforce a form of authoritarianism designed to crush dissent, crush questioning. And, and that's now repeated across Western society. That's the great tragedy of all of this, I think. Um, one thing that strikes me about the hate speech idea, both hate speech laws, but also the broader hate speech idea, because sometimes hate speech controls are enforced in a more informal way in the workplace, through workplace codes, for example, or through uh, speech codes on campuses and so on. Um, one thing that strikes me is just how unwieldy it is. And once you green light the idea that certain forms of speech should be subject to control and possibly punishment, there's really no end to it. Anything could then be collapsed under that censorious uh, crusade. And so I'm thinking of, you know, the fact that it, 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 the the target of hate speech legislation in the past was something like biological racism, the idea that there is, you know, the races are biologically, some races are biologically inferior to others. That was seen as a hateful idea. It is a hateful idea and one that ought to be targeted by, by legislation. But we've gone from targeting expressions of biological racism to targeting expressions of biological fact. You now have a situation, as we've discussed, where people can be hauled into court or publicly shamed or blacklisted from university campuses for expressing biological facts in relation to the existence of men and women. And that's how far we've come. And I was thinking this uh, recently, I think it was last year, Sussex police here in the UK, they sent a warning to people on Twitter because there is this... Um, man who identifies as a woman whose name is Sally Ann Dixon, who is a child abuser. And the police put up a photograph of him and they were talking about his case. And lots of Twitter users were saying that that's not a woman. Stop referring to him as a woman. That's a man. And Sussex police sent out a warning saying we will not tolerate any hateful comments towards someone's gender identity, regardless of what crimes they may have committed. So you think to yourself, you know, this is your noble crusade against hate speech. It ends up in a situation where the police will protect a child abuser from people telling the truth about his biological sex. And you really do end up in a morally warped universe as a consequence of all of this stuff. Um, one thing that you write about in relation to hate speech laws uh, in your book, and you've spoken about this as well, is the subjective element and just how subjective it is and how open to interpretation the whole idea of hatred is. And I was thinking about this in relation to Ireland's uh, hate crime bill, which you mentioned, um, which says essentially that a hate crime is anything that is perceived to be hateful by the person who experienced it or any other person, which echoes the um, outcome of the McPherson report here in the UK uh, 30 years ago, which likewise said, um, a, a hateful offence is something that's seen as hateful by any person in the vicinity or anyone who's witnessed it. How important do you think that subjectivity is to the unwieldy, tyrannical nature of hate crime laws? Yeah, it's it's extremely important and it's so different to how the rest of the criminal law operates. I mean, if we just take a step back, and think, what we're dealing with here is the criminal law. It's like the nuclear weapon in the state's arsenal of... of um, enforcing behavior. There's, there's nothing stronger that they have at their disposal. Um, and now if you think of any law that you can think of, you should be able to know with a reasonable degree of foreseeability 
whether you are breaking that law or not. And if you don't know, you should be able to find out. Um, but you don't have criminal laws that are subjective. You don't have assault and battery that's subjective or theft that's subjective. Um, and so when we have these hate speech laws that are so subjective, it's, it's really how the victim or alleged victim perceives um, the situation. And, and what's if I could add one more layer to it, it's not only subjectivity in many cases um, regarding what a supposed victim feels. Um, but if we take the case of Pavi Razanen again, there is no victim. There was no witnesses in court. There is no one in the dock saying, hey, this is how it affected me or wounded me. So you actually have a, a state prosecutor who is assuming he or she knows what is offensive to other people and assuming that their understanding of what is offensive and insulting is an accurate one. So it almost adds like an extra layer of subjectivity. First of all, you have the subjectivity of what was said and how it's interpreted. And then one step removed, it's a prosecutor's interpretation of that. And I struggle to think of any other area of the criminal law that operates even in the same ballpark as all of this. Yeah. It's it's such an important point. And, um, you know, there have been incidences, as you say, there was no victim in uh, the Pivey Rasenin case in Finland. She was simply expressing her views. And as you pointed out, a lot of the uh, material that was wielded against her in these court cases was um, stuff that she said many years ago, which most many people will have forgotten about or not seen at all when it first came out in relation to her, her pamphlet or, or whatever else it might be. And then they get dragged in the, into the public sphere at, almost as a way of making people feel like victims. And then you can justify the court case on that basis. Uh, you know, that kind of offense archaeology, digging into the past for, for bad things people might have said. Uh, I was also thinking about hate crime incidents here in the UK, where there very often is no victim at all. I remember when Amber Rudd, then Home Secretary, gave a speech about immigration and a professor, I think he was a professor at Oxford, felt offended by her speech, despite not having watched it or read it. Uh, so he's not a victim of it in any way at all. And then he reported it to the police and it was logged as a hate crime incident. It's such a, a, a Kafka-esque situation that we find ourselves in. Um, I wanted to ask you, do you think there is a growing pushback against all of this stuff? I mean, you've been agitating for one for a long time. We at Spite have been as well. We've been making the case that um, controlling hate speech is a bad idea, even when we're talking about genuinely hateful speech, which ought to be challenged in the public realm, the realm of freedom. But particularly when we're talking about moral beliefs or religious beliefs that have been cynically redefined as hate speech. Do you think there's a pushback? Because um, the Island Bill, for example, which we've talked about, there's a lot of controversy over that. Uh, there's controversy in Ireland, but also internationally, people are quite shocked by what's being proposed, which is not only something that's highly subjective, but also the idea that if you have in your possession anything that might be deemed hateful, you could find yourself in a court of law. That could be a, a dodgy meme on your phone or a video that someone WhatsApp to you that's still on your phone somewhere and which might be considered hateful by any person who who, who might view it or, or or get to know about it. There is a bit of a pushback in relation to some of these laws. And in Scotland, we know that gender critical feminists uh, are one group who are very worried about the hate crime uh, proposals. 
What's your view? Do you think people are tiring of this kind of legislation? Do you feel positive about a possible rising up against the new authoritarianism? Well, look, I'm I'm an optimist, an eternal optimist. So I'm always sort of feeling like, oh, it's going to turn around. And and I think there is for sure some positive trends that we can point to, not necessarily for the most positive reasons. What I mean by that is my feeling is a number of years ago, it was hard to rally support around the dangers of hate speech laws and what have you, because there was an assumption that it won't affect me, must be just for the really bad people and what have you. So we're not dealing with free speech purists here, more like self-interest. And then over the last decade, I think more and more people have come to realize, hey, I was kind of, I suppose, passively okay with other people getting investigated for hate speech. But now it's much closer to my doorstep. And now it's finally affecting me and the views that I have. I've suddenly woken up to the dangers. So I don't think that's necessarily the best thing. But I, I do think that that is what's happening. And as you and I have both warned about over the last decade and more, we will start to see this pattern where it's not just extremist views that are being um, that are being censored, but it will become increasingly mainstream. That's a prediction both of us have made many years ago, and that's proving true. But what that is also doing is bringing more opposition to these laws, which I think is, is ultimately a good thing. And you mentioned Ireland. They hope to ram that through in no time. It's stalled. Um, Scotland, they did get through, but now they're not even trying to bring it into force for um, at least another year, I think, because the police have come out and said they're, they're just not prepared they don't have the resources for what it would take to actually try and enforce this uh, hate speech law. So I think there is some pushback. And I know um, that speaking to um, lawmakers across Europe who themselves have uh, voted for these laws in the past, uh, they have said to me they, they didn't know what they were voting for. That In their mind, the way it was sold and the way they thought of it was your sort of neo-Nazi types, your super far-right extremists. That's how it was sold. And now it's not. It's taken less than a decade or so for people to realize, hang on, um, we were missold. And so now let's wait and see if that results in real legis legislative meaningful change, either repeal or reform or what have you. But I do think it's reached a level now that it's so in the mainstream and it's become so ridiculous that there has to be some sort of a pushback. Okay, that nicely brings me on to my final question for you. I think you make a really important point there about um, the self-interest that might be driving some of the contemporary revolts against hate speech, censorship, uh, the new forms of moral control that we're seeing. Um, that's not to poo-poo this revolt at all. I think there are very crucial elements. But I, I think about that sometimes in relation to something like TERFs. I'm a big fan of TERFs. Uh, I love TERFs. I think they're doing uh, the Lord's work, although I'm sure they wouldn't see it like that, um, <laughs> in terms of uh, really pushing back against a really vicious kind of censorship and a misogynistic form of censorship as well that really targets women much more harshly than, than men. Um, very important work that they're doing. But at the same time, I, I, I sometimes say to them, look, this is not a unique case. And in some cases, this is the logical conclusion, not even necessarily the conclusion, but it's the logical development of a censorious idea that has been brewing for a long time. And in many ways, it was our failure or some people's failure to recognize the brewing of that idea that then means that they could be targeted, uh, uh, targeted by it in the future. Um, so uh, bearing that in mind, how, how would you 
describe to people the importance of having an across-the-board principled approach to freedom of speech, one that is not about defending your own right to express your beliefs, but also defending other people's right to express beliefs that you find deeply offensive. Why do you think that's an important approach to take when we're talking about something as important as the freedom to express oneself? I think that I would give a principled and pragmatic answer. So I think there is a there is a principle here that we it, it can't just be free speech for me and not for thee. And I think many, many of us are subject to that sort of inbuilt bias that, that we would like our own freedom of speech and we'd be happy enough if things that we don't like are censored and silenced. And we might not like to admit it, but I think that there is a, a bias within us. And certainly as, as people move into positions of power, lesson of history is that's absolutely how they wield that power. Um, and so I think as a matter of principle, we have to resist that. Whatever temptation we have, we have to resist that. And it has to be free speech for all or none at all. And then thinking of it from a, from a pragmatic standpoint, if we only defend free speech for ourselves, it will not be enough and it will not sustain us. It will not sustain the movement. And um, what we will see happening is the the way in which others are censored will eventually come back to to bite us and affect us as well. So so you one can agree with me hopefully on the principle, uh, but even if you don't, as pure pragmatism, it's just not a good strategy to look after your own corner because eventually it turns around. And if people are listening in from the US, then they'll know that ADF in the US is often on the other side of legal battles with the ACLU, the American Civil Liberties Union. Uh, on any of the sort of moral issues that we engage in, they will take an opposing view. But when it comes to freedom of speech, we find increasingly uh, filing briefs on the same side. And uh, with this recognition um, that when it comes to freedom of speech, we have to set aside our differences on on the substance of the issue and argue for for the freedom. And it was a former leader of the ACLU, forget the name, who said that free speech restrictions are like poison gas. They might look great when the enemy is in your sights, and then the wind changes direction. And I think that is a, a great point and a great warning to all of us. We have to be very careful to support censorship, even of, of things that we uh, very much disagree with or find offensive, because the, it's so easy for the winds to change direction. And then we find that it's coming, blowing back on us. Paul, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Brendan O'Neill Show. We'll be back with another guest and more discussion. Don't forget to subscribe. And in the meantime, keep reading Spiked at www.spiked-online.com.